Chapter 49, Part 1 of The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Alec Datesman. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5, Chapter 49, Part 1. Introduction Workshop and Persecution of Images Revolt of Italy and Rome Temporal Dominion of the Popes Conquest of Italy by the Franks Establishment of Images Character and Coronation of Charlemagne Restoration and Decay of the Roman Empire in the West Independence of Italy Constitution of the Germanic Body In the connection of the Church and State, I have considered the former as subservient only and relative to the latter, a salutary maxim, if in fact, as well as in narrative, it had ever been held sacred. The oriental philosophy of the Gnostics, the dark abyss of predestination and grace, and the strange transformation of the Eucharist from the sign to the substance of Christ's body, I have purposely abandoned to the curiosity of speculative divines, but I have reviewed, with diligence and pleasure, the objects of ecclesiastical history, by which the decline and fall of the Roman Empire were materially affected, the propagation of Christianity, the constitution of the Catholic Church, the ruin of paganism, and the sects that arose from the mysterious controversies concerning the Trinity and Incarnation. At the head of this class we may justly rank the worship of images so fiercely disputed in the eighth and ninth centuries, since a question of popular superstition produced the revolt of Italy, the temporal power of the popes, and the restoration of the Roman Empire in the West. The primitive Christians were possessed with unconquerable repugnance to the use and abuse of images, and this aversion may be ascribed to their descent from the Jews, and their enmity to the Greeks. The Mosaic law had severely prescribed all representations of the deity, and that precept was firmly established in the principles and practice of the chosen people. The wit of the Christian apologists was pointed against the foolish idolaters, who bowed before the workmanship of their own hands, the images of brass and marble, which, had they been endowed with sense and motion, should have started rather from the pedestal to adore the creative powers of the artist. Perhaps some recent and imperfect converts of the Gnostic tribe might crown the statues of Christ and St. Paul with the profane honors which they paid to those of Aristotle and Pythagoras, but the public religion of the Catholics was uniformly simple and spiritual, and the first notice of the use of pictures is in the censure of the Council of Illiberis, three hundred years after the Christian era. Under the successors of Constantine, in the peace and luxury of the triumphant church, the more prudent bishops condescended to indulge a visible superstition for the benefit of the multitude, and, after the ruin of paganism, they were no longer restrained by the apprehension of an odious parallel. The first introduction of a symbolic worship was in the veneration of the cross, and of relics. The saints and martyrs, whose intercession was implored, were seated on the right hand of God, but the gracious and often supernatural favors which, in the popular belief, were showered round their tomb, conveyed an unquestionable sanction of the devout pilgrims who visited and touched and kissed these lifeless remains, the memorials of their merits and sufferings. But a memorial, more interesting than the skull or the sandals of a departed worthy, is the faithful copy of his person and features, delineated by the arts of painting or sculpture. In every age, such copies, so congenial to human feelings, have been cherished by the zeal of private friendship or public esteem. The images of the Roman emperors were adored with civil and almost religious honors, a reverence less ostentatious, 
but more sincere, was applied to the statues of sages and patriots, and these profane virtues, these splendid sins, disappeared in the presence of the holy men, who had died for their celestial and everlasting country. At first the experiment was made with caution and scruple, and the venerable pictures were discreetly allowed to instruct the ignorant, to awaken the cold, and to gratify the prejudices of the heathen proselytes. By a slow though inevitable progression, the honors of the original were transferred to the copy, the devout Christian prayed before the image of a saint, and the pagan rites of genuflection, luminaries, and incense again stole into the Catholic Church. The scruples of reason, or piety, were silenced by the strong evidence of visions and miracles, and the pictures which speak, and move, and bleed, must be endowed with a divine energy, and may be considered as the proper objects of religious adoration. The most audacious pencil might tremble in the rash attempt of defining, by forms and colors, the infinite spirit, the eternal Father, who pervades and sustains the universe. But the superstitious mind was more easily reconciled to paint and to worship the angels, and above all, the Son of God, under the human shape, which, on earth, they have condescended to assume. The second person of the Trinity had been clothed with a real and mortal body, but that body had ascended into heaven, and, had not some similitude been presented to the eyes of his disciples, the spiritual worship of Christ might have been obliterated by the visible relics and representations of the saints. A similar indulgence was requisite and propitious for the Virgin Mary. The place of her burial was unknown, and the assumption of her soul and body into heaven was adopted by the credulity of the Greeks and Latins. The use, and even the worship, of images was firmly established before the end of the sixth century. They were fondly cherished by the warm imagination of the Greeks and Asiatics, the Pantheon and Vatican were adorned with the emblems of a new superstition, but this semblance of idolatry was more coldly entertained by the rude barbarians and the Aryan clergy of the West. The bolder forms of sculpture, in brass or marble, which peopled the temples of antiquity, were offensive to the fancy or conscience of the Christian Greeks, and a smooth surface of colors has ever been esteemed a more decent and harmless mode of imitation. The merit and effect of a copy depends on its resemblance with the original, but the primitive Christians were ignorant of the genuine features of the Son of God, his mother, and his apostles. The statue of Christ at Peneus in Palestine was more probably that of some temporal savior. The Gnostics and the profane monuments were reprobated, and the fancy of the Christian artists could only be guided by the clandestine imitation of some heathen model. In this distress, a bold and dexterous invention assured at once the likeness of the image and the innocence of the worship. A new superstructure of fable was raised on the popular basis of Assyrian legend, on the correspondence of Christ and Abgarus, so famous in the days of Eusebius, so reluctantly deserted by our modern advocates. The bishop of Caesarea records the epistle, but he most strangely forgets the picture of Christ, the perfect impression of his face on a linen, with which he gratified the faith of the royal stranger who had invoked his healing power, and offered the strong city of Edessa to protect him against the malice of the Jews. The ignorance of the primitive church is explained by the long imprisonment of the image of a niche of the wall, from whence, after an oblivion of five hundred years, it was released by some prudent bishop, and seasonably presented to the devotion of the times. Its first and most glorious exploit was the deliverance of the city from the arms of Shosros Nushirvan, and it was soon revered as a pledge of the divine promise, that Edessa should never be taken by a foreign enemy. It is true, indeed, that the text of Procopius ascribes the double deliverance of Edessa to the wealth and valor of her citizens, who purchased the absence and repelled the assaults of the Persian monarch. He was ignorant, 
the profane historian of the testimony which he is compelled to deliver in the ecclesiastical page of Evagrius, that the palladium was exposed on the rampart, and that the water which had been sprinkled on the holy face, instead of quenching, added new fuel to the flames of the besieged. After this important service, the image of Edessa was preserved with respect and gratitude, and if the Armenians rejected the legend, the more credulous Greeks adored the similitude, which was not the work of any mortal pencil, but the immediate creation of the divine original. The style and sentiments of a Byzantine hymn will declare how far their worship was removed from the grossest idolatry. How can we with mortal eyes contemplate this image, whose celestial splendor the host of heaven presumes not to behold? He who dwells in heaven condescends this day to visit us by his venerable image. He who is seated on the cherubim visits us this day by a picture, which the Father has delineated with his immaculate hand, which he has formed in an ineffable manner, and which we sanctify by adoring it with fear and love. Before the end of the sixth century, these images, made without hands, in Greek it is a single word, were propagated in the camps and cities of the Eastern Empire. They were the objects of worship, and the instruments of miracles, and in the hour of danger or tumult, their venerable presence could revive the hope, rekindle the courage, or repress the fury of the Roman legions. Of these pictures, the far greater part, the transcripts of a human pencil, could only pretend to a secondary likeness and improper title. But there was something of a higher descent, who derived their resemblance from an immediate contact with the original, endowed, for that purpose, with a miraculous and prolific virtue. The most ambitious aspired from a filial to a fraternal relation with the image of Edessa, and such is the Veronica of Rome, or Spain, or Jerusalem, which Christ in his agony and bloody sweat applied to his face, and delivered to a holy matron. The fruitful precedent was speedily transferred to the Virgin Mary, and the saints and martyrs. In the church of Diospolis, in Palestine, the features of the Mother of God were deeply inscribed in a marble column. The east and west have been decorated by the pencil of St. Luke, and the evangelist, who was perhaps a physician, has been forced to exercise the occupation of a painter, so profane and odious in the eyes of the primitive Christians. The Olympian Jove, created by the muse of Homer and the chisel of Phidias, might inspire a philosophic mind with momentary devotion, but these Catholic images were faintly and flatly delineated by monkish artists in the last degeneracy of taste and genius. The worship of images had stolen into the church by insensible degrees, and each petty step was pleasing to the superstitious mind, as productive of comfort and innocent of sin. But in the beginning of the eighth century, in the full magnitude of the abuse, the more timorous Greeks were awakened by an apprehension that under the mask of Christianity they had restored the religion of their fathers. They heard, with grief and impatience, the name of the idolaters, the incessant charge of the Jews and the Mahatmatans, who derived from the law and the Koran an immortal hatred to graven images and all relative worship. The servitude of the Jews might curb their zeal and appreciate their authority, but the triumphant Mussulmans, who reigned at Damascus and threatened Constantinople, cast into the scale of reproach the accumulated weight of truth and victory. The cities of Syria, Palestine, and Egypt had been fortified with the images of Christ, his mother, and his saints, and each city presumed on the hope or promise of miraculous defense. In a rapid conquest of ten years, the Arabs subdued those cities and these images, and, in their opinion, the Lord of hosts pronounced a decisive judgment between the adoration and contempt of these mute and inanimate idols. For a while Edessa had braved the Persian assaults, but the chosen city, the spouse of Christ, was involved in the common ruin, and his divine resemblance became the slave and trophy of the infidels. 
after a servitude of three hundred years, the palladium was yielded to the devotion of Constantinople for a ransom of twelve thousand pounds of silver, the redemption of two hundred Mussulmans, and a perpetual truce for the territory of Edessa. In this season of distress and dismay, the eloquence of the monks was exercised in the defense of images, and they attempted to prove that the sin and schism of the greater part of the Orientals had forfeited the favor and annihilated the virtue of these precious symbols. But they were now opposed by the murmurs of many simple or rational Christians, who appealed to the evidence of texts, of facts, and of the primitive times, and secretly desired the reformation of the church. As the worship of images had never been established by any general or positive law, its progress in the Eastern Empire had been retarded, or accelerated, by the differences of men and manners, the local degrees of refinement, and the personal characters of the bishops. The splendid devotion was fondly cherished by the levity of the capital, and the invective genius of the Byzantine clergy, while the rude and remote districts of Asia were strangers to this innovation of sacred luxury. Many large congregations of Gnostics and Arians maintained, after their conversion, the simple worship which had preceded their separation, and the Armenians, the most warlike subjects of Rome, were not reconciled, in the twelfth century, to the sight of images. These various denominations of men afforded a fund of prejudice and diversion, of small account in the villages of Anatolia or Thrace, but which, in the fortune of a soldier, a prelate, or a eunuch, might often be connected with the powers of the church and state. Of such adventurers, the most fortunate was the emperor, Leo the Third, who, from the mountains of Isauria, ascended the throne of the East. He was ignorant of sacred and profane letters, but his education, his reason, perhaps his intercourse with the Jews and Arabs, had inspired the martial peasant with a hatred of images, and it was held to be the duty of a prince to impose on his subjects the dictates of his own conscience. But in the outset of an unsettled reign, during ten years of toil and danger, Leo submitted to the meanness of hypocrisy, bowed before the idols which he despised, and satisfied the Roman pontiff with the annual professions of his orthodoxy and zeal. In the reformation of religion, his first steps were moderate and cautious. He assembled a great council of senators and bishops, and enacted, with their consent, that all the images should be removed from the sanctuary and altar to a proper height in the churches, where they might be visible to the eyes, and inaccessible to the superstition of the people. But it was impossible on either side to check the rapid though adverse impulse of veneration and abhorrence. In their lofty position, the sacred images still edified their votaries, and reproached the tyrant. He was himself provoked by resistance and invective, and his own party accused him of an imperfect discharge of his duty, and urged for his imitation the example of the Jewish king, who had broken without scruple the brazen serpent of the temple. By a second edict, he proscribed the existence as well as the use of religious pictures, the churches of Constantinople, and the provinces were cleansed from idolatry. The images of Christ, the Virgin, and the saints were demolished, or a smooth surface of plaster was spread over the walls of the edifice. The sect of the iconoclasts was supported by the zeal and despotism of six emperors, and the East and West were involved in a noisy conflict of one hundred and twenty years. It was a design of Leo the Isaurian to pronounce the condemnation of images as an article of faith, and by the authority of a general council, but the convocation of such an assembly was reserved for his son Constantine, and though it is stigmatized by triumphant bigotry as a meeting of fools and atheists, their own partial and mutilated acts betray many symptoms of reason and piety. The debates and decrees of many provincial synods introduced the summons of the general council, which met in the suburbs of Constantinople, and was composed of the respectable number of 338 bishops of Europe and Anatolia. 
for the patriarchs of Antioch and Alexandria were the slaves of the caliph, and the Roman pontiff had withdrawn the churches of Italy and the West from the communion of the Greeks. This Byzantine synod assumed the rank and power of the seventh general council, yet even this title was a recognition of the six preceding assemblies, which had laboriously built the structure of the Catholic faith. After a serious deliberation of six months, the 338 bishops pronounced and subscribed a unanimous decree that all visible symbols of Christ, except in the Eucharist, were either blasphemous or heretical, that image worship was a corruption of Christianity and a renewal of paganism, that all such monuments of idolatry should be broken or erased, and that those who should refuse to deliver the objects of their private superstition were guilty of disobedience to the authority of the church and of the emperor. In their loud and loyal acclamations, they celebrated the merits of their temporal redeemer, and to his zeal and justice they entrusted the execution of their spiritual censures. At Constantinople, as in the former councils, the will of the prince was the rule of episcopal faith, but on this occasion I am inclined to suspect that a large majority of the prelates sacrificed their secret conscience to the temptations of hope and fear. In the long night of superstition, the Christians had wandered far away from their simplicity of the gospel, nor was it easy for them to discern the clue and tread back the mazes of the labyrinth. The worship of images was inseparably blended, at least to a pious fancy, with the cross of the Virgin, the saints and their relics. The holy ground was involved in a cloud of miracles and visions, and the nerves of the mind, curiosity and skepticism, were benumbed by the habits of obedience and belief. Constantine himself is accused of indulging a royal license to doubt or deny or deride the mysteries of the Catholics, but they were deeply inscribed in the public and private creed of his bishops, and the boldest iconoclast might assault with a secret horror the monuments of popular devotion, which were consecrated to the honor of his celestial patrons. In the reformation of the sixteenth century, freedom and knowledge had expanded all the faculties of man. The thirst of innovation superseded the reverence of antiquity, and the vigor of Europe could disdain those phantoms which terrified the sickly and servile weakness of the Greeks. The scandal of an abstract heresy can only be proclaimed to the people by the blast of the ecclesiastical trumpet, but the most ignorant can perceive, the most torpid must feel, the profanation and downfall of their visible deities. The first hostilities of Leo were directed against the lofty Christ on the vestibule and above the gate of the palace. A ladder had been planted for the assault, but it was furiously shaken by a crowd of zealots and women. They beheld, with pious transport, the ministers of sacrilege tumbling from on high and dashed against the pavement, and the honors of the ancient martyrs were prostituted to these criminals, who justly suffered for murder and rebellion. The execution of the imperial edicts was resisted by frequent tumults in Constantinople and the provinces. The person of Leo was endangered, his officers were massacred, and the popular enthusiasm was quelled by the strongest efforts of the civil and military power. Of the archipelago, or Holy See, the numerous islands were filled with images and monks, their votaries abjured without scruple, the enemy of Christ, his mother, and the saints. They armed a fleet of boats and galleys, displayed their consecrated banners, and boldly steered for the harbor of Constantinople to place on the throne a new favorite of God and the people. They depended on the succor of a miracle, but their miracles were inefficient against the Greek fire, and, after the defeat and conflagration of the fleet, the naked islands were abandoned to the clemency of justice of the conqueror. The son of Leo, in the first year of his reign, had undertaken an exposition against the Saracens. During his absence, the capital, the palace, and the purple were occupied by his kinsman, Artavastes, the ambitious champion of the Orthodox faith. The worship of images was triumphantly restored. 
The patriarch renounced his dissimulation, or dissembled his sentiments, and the righteous claims of the usurper were acknowledged, both in the new and in ancient Rome. Constantine flew for refuge to his paternal mountains, but he descended at the head of the bold and affectionate Isurians, and his final victory confounded the arms and predictions of the fanatics. His long reign was distracted with clamor, sedition, conspiracy, and mutual hatred, and sanguinary revenge. The persecution of images was the motive or pretense of his adversaries, and, if they missed a temporal diadem, they were rewarded by the Greeks with the crowd of martyrdom. In every act of open and clandestine treason, the emperor felt the unforgiving enmity of the monks, the faithful slaves of the superstition to which they owed their riches and influence. They prayed, they preached, they absolved, they inflamed, they conspired. The solitude of Palestine poured forth a torrent of invective, and the pen of St. John Damascenus, the last of the Greek fathers, devoted the tyrant's head, both in this world and the next. I am not at leisure to examine how far the monks provoked, nor how much they have exaggerated their real and pretended sufferings, nor how many lost their lives or limbs, their eyes or their beards, by the cruelty of the emperor. From the chastisement of individuals, he proceeded to the abolition of the order, and, as it was wealthy and useless, his resentment might be stimulated by avarice, and justified by patriotism. The formidable name and mission of the dragon, his visitor-general, excited the terror and abhorrence of the black nation. The religious communities were dissolved, the buildings were converted into magazines, or bar-racks, the lands, movables, and cattle were confiscated, and our modern precedents will support the charge that much wanton or malicious havoc was exercised against the relics, and even the books of the monasteries. With the habit and profession of monks, the public and private worship of images was rigorously prescribed, and it should seem that a solemn abjuration of idolatry was exacted from the subjects, or at least from the clergy, of the Eastern Empire. The patient East abjured, with reluctance, her sacred images. They were fondly cherished and vigorously defended by the independent zeal of the Italians. In ecclesiastical rank and jurisdiction, the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Pope of Rome were nearly equal, but the Greek prelate was a domestic slave under the eye of his master, at whose don he alternately passed from the convent to the throne, and from the throne to the convent. A distant and dangerous station, amidst the barbarians of the West, excited the spirit and freedom of the Latin bishops. Their popular election endeared them to the Romans. The public and private indigence was relieved by their ample revenue, and the weakness or neglect of the emperors compelled them to consult, both in peace and war, the temporal safety of the city. In the school of adversity, the priest insensibly imbibed the virtues and the ambition of a prince. The same character was assumed, the same policy was adopted, by the Italian, the Greek, or the Syrian, who was sent to the chair of St. Peter, and after the loss of her legions and provinces, the genius and fortune of the popes again restored the supremacy of Rome. It is agreed that in the eighth century their dominion was founded on rebellion, and that the rebellion was produced and justified by the heresy of the iconoclasts. But the conduct of the second and third Gregory in this memorable contest is invariably interpreted by the wishes of their friends and enemies. The Byzantine writers unanimously declare that after a fruitless admonition they pronounced the separation of the East and West and deprived the sacrilegious tyrant of the revenue and sovereignty of Italy. Their excommunication is still more clearly expressed by the Greeks who beheld the accomplishment of the papal triumphs, and as they are more strongly attached to their religion than to their country, they praise, instead of blaming, the zeal and orthodoxy of these apostolical men. The modern champions of Rome are eager to accept the praise and the precedent. 
This great and glorious example of the deposition of royal heretics is celebrated by the cardinals Baronius and Bellarmine, and if they are asked why the same thunders were not hurled against the Neros and Julians of antiquity, they reply that the weakness of the primitive church was the sole cause of her patient loyalty. On this occasion the effects of love and hatred are the same, and the zealous Protestants, who seek to kindle the indignation and to alarm the fears of princes and magistrates, expatiate on the insolence and treason of the two Gregories against their lawful sovereign. They are defended only by the moderate Catholics, for the most part, of the Gallican Church, who respect the saint without approving the sin. These common advocates of the crown and the meter circumscribe the truth of facts by the rule of equity, scripture, and tradition, and appeal to the evidence of the Latins and the lives and epistles of the popes themselves. End of chapter 49, section 1. Your reader was Alec Datesman, Brooklyn, New York.